This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Roadkill. You've probably seen your share of it and maybe even accidentally killed an animal on the road. Cars are weapons of death for wildlife, large and small, that live in wooded areas near the road. From salamanders to birds, skunks, possum, deer, mountain lions, and bears. The roads themselves are problems, too, cutting off animals from their sources of food, migration paths, animals to mate with, even messing with evolution. The dire threats roads have created for animals, and ways to eliminate or at least moderate those threats, Well, put it all together and you've got what's called road ecology. The world of road ecology is filled with fascinating insights into animal behavior, the threats they face from roads, and solutions that have been tried. I just learned about this in the new book, Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. My guest is the author, Ben Goldfarb. His previous book, titled Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter, won the Penn E. O. Wilson Literary Science Writing Award. Goldfarb has been published in The Atlantic, National Geographic, and The New York Times. He lives in Colorado. Ben Goldfarb, welcome to Fresh Air. I want to say, am I the only person who didn't know what road ecology was? <laughs> no, you're, you're certainly not. You're in the vast majority uh, in not knowing what road ecology is. Good. So let's talk about it. I want to start with what you say, that roads signify freedom in Kerouac novels like On the Road and in Springsteen songs, but they're death traps for animals. Describe how roadkill is affecting survival of certain species. You know, I I think that the animals that we tend to see by the side of the road are those really common critters like white-tailed deer and raccoons and gray squirrels. Uh, And as a result, I think that we sometimes fail to recognize that roadkill is a true crisis for biodiversity. You know, it's one of the major contributors to our, our current mass extinction event. And for species like ocelots and Florida panthers and tiger salamanders, roadkill is a, a true existential threat. It's one of the significant checks on animal populations and, uh, and the diversity of life on this, this planet. You say that wild ecosystems weed out the sick and the old, but roadkill is an equal opportunity predator as likely to eliminate the strong as the frail. So what's the significance of that, even for evolution? Right. So, you know, you you could imagine that in a a natural ecosystem, you know, the predators, the wolves or the cougars are targeting those older, sicker animals, those older, sicker deer or elk uh, or the young fawn, you know, who's struggling to survive. So, you know, natural selection has this way of, again, targeting the least fit members of a a population. But roads are indiscriminate. Uh, You know, cars take out the old, the young, the middle-aged, the strong, the weak, uh, without any discernment. You know, a a car or or a a truck doesn't care whether you're uh, a diseased, older animal or uh, one in the prime of your life. And as a result, you know, roadkill is weeding out. Roadkill is not only eliminating animals, it's in many cases eliminating those healthy animals that populations need to remain strong. So in that sense, it's it's an equal opportunity and indiscriminate predator. Have you ever accidentally killed an animal on the road? 
Uh, Terry, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit that I've accidentally killed many animals on the road. I, I killed uh, a, a marmot uh, here in Spokane, where I'm currently speaking to you from uh, a couple of years ago. I killed an owl a few weeks ago. Uh, it's a terrible feeling after I killed that owl driving through southern Colorado. I had to pull over and take a few minutes to uh, compose myself because I was miserable about it. Do you have an electric vehicle or a hybrid? I'm just wondering, you know, like, they're so much quieter than cars. Maybe animals and birds don't hear them coming in the way that they'd hear a regular car. Yeah, that's it's an interesting question and certainly something that's been hypothesized, right, that electric vehicles compared to a conventional internal combustion engine uh, vehicle are, are basically silent. But the thing about road noise and road noise pollution, which is a, a huge problem, is that at highway speeds especially, which are the speeds at which you're most likely to hit an animal, most of the noise from a vehicle actually comes from the tires. You know, what you're hearing when you hear that kind of monotonous hiss of the interstate is actually that's the sound of the tires gliding along the asphalt and the little air pockets that are trapped in the treads of the tires popping. That's the that kind of pattern noise that, uh, that you hear from big highways. So at, at those faster highway speeds, cars are still pretty audible thanks to the tires rather than the engines. Now, you've mentioned some of the losers, some of the animals that are losers because of roadkill and because of roads. Some of the winners are vultures and other birds of prey that feast on dead animals like roadkill. Are they starting to overpopulate as a result? They're certainly increasing in population and following these linear trails of carrion that we've created, uh, you know, into into new habitats. I don't think they're overpopulating. You know, one one important thing to keep in mind, of course, is just how much wildlife used to exist on this continent prior to the mass extinction events during the Pleistocene. You know, we had these giant ground sloths and enormous beavers and mammoths and mastodons. You know, the, the whole continent was carpeted in, in meat for, for scavengers. And there actually, there, were, there used to be massive vultures called teratorns that, uh, that feasted on all of this, uh, this, this carrion um, that was killed by animals like short-faced bears and dire wolves and saber-toothed cats. So in, in some ways, you know, the land being carpeted with carrion for large scavenging birds is sort of the normal state of affairs in in North America. You know, the car is creating uh, this necrobiome, you know, this ecosystem that revolves around uh, dead animals. And that's not to excuse roadkill or to justify it as a natural process. It it certainly isn't. Uh, But, you know, I think it does speak to the fact that roads create ecosystems in their own right. And there there are animals that benefit from them in some ways. You know, evolutionary protections don't necessarily help on the road, like like skunks, like their odor scares, you know, it turns off other animals and therefore um, theoretically stay away. But, right. you know, a, a horrible odor isn't going to defeat oncoming traffic. Right, right. And that's, you know, certainly true of so many species, right? A porcupine's quills are not going to defeat oncoming traffic. A turtle shell is not going to defeat oncoming traffic. And I think that's one of the really cruel things about roadkill in some ways is that it it hijacks evolutionary history and renders all of these 
ancient defense mechanisms maladaptive. You know, all of those strategies, a skunk spray or a porcupine's quills or a turtle shell, those worked for thousands of generations uh, against coyotes and foxes and hawks and other more natural predators. But, you know, against a, an F-250 barreling down I-90, they're, they're not only useless, they're actually maladaptive. Standing your ground and hunkering down is the worst possible thing you can do. Some species evolve to deal with roads. And I'm thinking of the cliff swallows, a bird I was never familiar with until reading your book. But you write, if you've ever driven across the U.S., you've passed beneath the wings of this small, plucky songbird. So they've been winners and losers. First, they were losers because they were dying out because of the roads. But then they became winners and learned to, like, thrive on roadsides. How did they manage to thrive on roadsides? Yeah, so cliff swallows are they're birds that they they build these little mud nests and and you know historically they built them on the sides of cliffs. That's how they get their name, of course. Uh, but you know we've created all of these good nesting habitats for cliff swallows in the form of our bridges and highway overpasses. And, you know, they plaster these little mud nests to that concrete substrate that we've provided them. But of course, you know, nesting uh, on a highway overpass is very dangerous and, you know, they become roadkill like so many other species. And, you know, this research into cliff swallows was conducted by a, a scientist named Charles Brown starting in the 1980s. And, you know, he observed in Nebraska that cliff swallows were becoming coming roadkill. But over time, what he saw uh, was that they became roadkill less and less often. They were, they were hit with increasing rarity uh, over time. And, and what he figured out from examining specimens over many decades is that they were actually evolving to get shorter wings. Their wings were growing shorter. And, you know, you can imagine that if you're a bird having a long, a long wing is good for straight flights, whereas having a shorter wing is good for tight rolls and turns and pirouettes, the kind of quick movement that you'd use to maneuver out of the way of a barreling 18-wheeler. So over time, those long-wing cliff swallows were more susceptible to roadkill and, and were weeded out of the population. And this, the cliff swallows evolved to have shorter wings and to be more nimble to avoid oncoming traffic. And, you know, I think that we think about evolution as being this process that transpires over the course of many centuries or millennia or even millions of years. And yet in Nebraska with cliff swallows, it, it happened in the geologic blink of an eye, just a few decades, which I think is an amazing testament to how transformative and powerful roads are as this selective force that's changing the lives of wildlife all over the world. One biologist told you that once the environment is ruined, all we'll have left is rats, cockroaches, and cliff swallows. <laughs> Are they nice birds? <laughs> Will we be happy to have them? I'm I'm certainly happy to have them. You know they're they're beautiful birds, and you know I just I just have such admiration for them that they've been able to carve out this niche within our infrastructure. And you know there are so many great examples of that. Cliff swallows are evolving, and other animals are changing their behavior to adapt to all of the infrastructure we've created. You know Chicago's coyotes, a very famous urban wildlife population. You know they allegedly look both ways before crossing the street and use crosswalks at red lights. Uh, you know, there are, there are crows in Japan that have learned to drop their nuts on the, on the 
the road so that cars actually crack the nuts for them, and then they'll scurry out at the red light and pick up the, the nut that the car cracked <laughs> open. Right. So you know, we think about roads as these forces that are, are universally or, or exclusively harmful to animals, and certainly they're incredibly destructive. But you know, wildlife is also incredibly adaptive and clever, and and they're finding ways to make a living in our midst. So tell us a little bit more about the typical problems besides roadkill faced by animals from roads and cars. Yeah, you know, there are, there are so many different road and traffic-related ecological problems that it's it's hard to know where to begin. I think that one of the most pernicious ones is the barrier effect, right? The steady stream of traffic that rolls down so many busy highways forms what some biologists have called the moving fence, you know, this impenetrable wall of vehicles that animals don't even attempt to cross. And I think that's a, a difficult problem to solve because, again, we've all seen the, you know, the dead deer or opossum or squirrel by the side of the road. But, you know, what you don't see are the animals that never even attempt to cross. And those animals can really suffer as a result. And in some ways, that barrier effect can be worse than roadkill itself. You know, in, in the book, I write about uh, mule deer, these these deer that migrate uh, across large distances in the, the American West. And, you know, in some cases, they've had vast swaths of their habitat lopped off by this, this moving fence of traffic on big interstates like I-80, and they can't access the their winter range, you know, these low elevation valleys that they need to survive at the, the end of their migration. And, you know, in some years, 40% of these mule deer herds have starved. And, you know, that's, again, worse than roadkill in some ways. You know, these animal populations can survive a handful of collisions in, in many cases. What they can't survive is losing all of that habitat and suffering starvation as a result. Part of road ecology is creating roadsides that have plants and weeds <laughs> that would be nourishing for the wildlife that lives by the roadside. Can you tell us a little bit about how that's being done and what are some of the some of the plants that are helping to nourish uh, wildlife? So the kind of the archetypal case study for this idea of roadsides as habitat is, is really the monarch butterfly. And, you know, monarch butterflies migrate uh, across vast distances. And in the Midwest, uh, their migration just happens to almost perfectly coincide with I-35, which runs from Minnesota to Texas. And, you know, in, in the middle of the country, so much of the landscape has been converted to monoculture, to corn and soy and and those monarch butterflies have lost so much of the milkweed that they need to survive. Their caterpillars feed exclusively on milkweed. And, you know, those roadside strips are some of the last remnants of milkweed, the last native prairie left in the in the Midwest and have become uh, monarch habitat as a result. And, and uh, you know, a bunch of state departments of transportation have branded that I-35 corridor, the Monarch Highway, uh, you know, because it's it's sort of the source of, of milkweed running through the middle of the country. But of course, you know, living by the road is a, a dangerous place to be and millions of monarch butterflies are killed by cars. Uh, you know, we don't really think about insects as being roadkill, right? But, you know, certainly monarch butterflies and so many other pollinators uh, become roadkill them, themselves. And so it's it's sort of incumbent, I think, on, on the agencies who are governing 
governing or managing these roads to think about that too, you know, to make sure that they're that they're producing more butterflies than they're potentially killing by luring these animals uh, to the side of the highway. That's obviously it's a it's a potentially valuable source of habitat for these insects, but you know, it's also not the ideal place to uh, to live if you're if you're any critter. Well, I would think even like the wind pattern caused by cars whizzing by would disrupt the flight patterns of monarch butterflies. Yeah, there there are scientists who have who have observed monarch butterflies being torn apart by those those wind vortices off of the the back of of passing trucks. And you know, it's not just the the traffic itself. It's you know, it's also the road salt, which is potentially an issue. You know, all of the road salt that we apply as a de-icer, uh, you know, twenty million tons every year in the United States is running off roads and you know, potentially changing the chemistry of vegetation uh, along roadsides. And then there's the cadmium and the zinc and the copper from our, our cars and there's the tire particles and the microplastics, right? So the, you know, the road is a, a very chemically complex and potentially challenging environment for monarch butterflies and everything else. A lot of roadsides have like grass and flowers. They look kind of like lawns, very pretty. But you yeah. say that's often like really bad for the wildlife living there. What's wrong with it? The lawn effect, you know, is... is problematic in that, you know, those roadsides are, again, they're, they are potentially habitat, right? You know, you could imagine, and, and many states have done this, you know, planting roadsides in pollinator-friendly flowers and shrubs that provide fruit for birds and, and so on. You know, those, those roadsides are, again, valuable habitat if they're managed properly, you know, that again, the risk is just luring animals into what scientists know as these ecological traps, you know, these these situations in which you promise resources like nectar-producing flowers or fruiting shrubs, and then, you know, you're drawing animals into this, this dangerous situation. You know, you mentioned that a lot of um, highway noise is really like the wheels going at high speed, the tires going at high speed. That's what you're hearing is the, the tire friction. Um, are most animals scared of the highway noise? Is it a warning to them? Yeah, animals definitely avoid noisy environments and you know i think we we don't recognize this but you know road noise is a, a form of habitat loss you know that's chasing animals away from these vast areas there's a, a really wonderful experiment done by researchers at uh, Boise State University about a decade ago and and what they did was basically record the noise of traffic and then play it through speakers in a an unroaded area so they created what they called a, a phantom road this just road of noise that had no no physical road associated with it. And what they found was that, uh, you know, many species of songbird avoided that area. Uh, and the ones who did stick around were in worse body condition. So, you know, you can imagine that if you're a, a little songbird, you know, you have to spend all of your time listening for predators, you know, the flap of a hawk's wings or a, a fox creeping through the brush. And if if the noise of a road masks those auditory signals, you have to look for predators instead. And every minute that you're looking around is a minute that you're not feeding on berries or insects or whatever you eat. Uh, so the birds in this area were less fit to complete their migration because they were looking around for predators all the time rather than listening for them because all of that traffic noise masked their their hearing essentially. So, you know, there are lots of studies showing that animals avoid noisy areas and and uh, roads are a huge contributor to this this noise pollution problem. 
And animals can't communicate with each other easily if the noise from traffic is obscuring the animal's sounds. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's a, a really wonderful study that was done during the spring of 2020 during the COVID uh, lockdown, which was, you know, really ultimately one of the biggest inadvertent experiments in the history of, of road ecology. You know, when, what happens when you stop the vast majority of traffic for a couple of months? And what these researchers in the Bay Area found was that white-crowned sparrows, these, you know, these wonderful little songbirds, as soon as that traffic noise went away, they started singing songs that went into much wider ranges and were more complex and intricate. They basically became better singers because they didn't have to scream over the the noise of traffic all the time, which is just an incredible testament to both how road noise is changing these animals' lives and, and also how flexible and adaptable these, these animals are. They're just waiting for traffic to go away so that they can resume their, their natural lives. Well, let's take another short break here and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is Ben Goldfarb. His new book is called Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. We'll be right back after a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado, back in your feeds to share what we're up to on Fresh Air Plus this week. We listen back to Terry's 1994 interview with the late singer Etta James. During those days, um, you weren't allowed to say roll because roll was like a vulgar, vulgar word. You know what I mean? Think, for for think sex, about, yeah. Think, yeah, think about it. They would probably burn Prince at the stake. <laughs> <laughs> you can hear Etta James for yourself at last by joining Fresh Air Plus at plus.npr.org. Let's get back to my interview with Ben Goldfarb, author of the new book, Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. It's about all the dangers that roads and traffic create for wildlife, from roadkill to disrupting migration patterns, cutting off access to food, and even messing with evolution. The book is also about ways to protect wildlife from cars and roads. Goldfarb's previous book, titled Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter, won the Penn E.O. Wilson Literary Science Writing Award. He's been published in The Atlantic, National Geographic, and The New York Times. Let's talk about a specific example of a highway that has created problems for animals. And I'm thinking of one of the freeways in California, the Ventura Freeway, US 101. 
and it splits Santa Monica into two separate parts. What's the difference between those two parts, and why is that significant? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that freeway because it's such a, a clear example of the harms that roads and especially these really high traffic roads can create. So what what happened in the Santa Monica Mountains essentially is that when that freeway went through, it it cleaved the mountain range in half and it isolated so much of the wildlife south of the of the freeway, especially mountain lions. See, there's this little population of, of mountain lions that lives west of Los Angeles, a very urban uh, area, of course. You know, these these animals are living very close to the largest city in the country, kind of uh, amazingly. Uh, but, you know, they've been, they've been totally cut off from other mountain lions by this freeway. They're essentially in this little island of habitat. And that's been disastrous for them. First, you know, the young male mountain lions can't disperse. They're trying to find their own territories, get away from the bigger, older, more established males. But they, they sort of bounce off of these high traffic uh, freeways like ping Pong balls. They can't get out of this island because of all of the traffic, and they end up in conflicts with, in some cases, their own fathers, and get killed by their, you know, their own their own fathers. Uh, and even worse is that new mountain lions can't enter the population. Right, no new animals can come in because of these these steady walls of, of traffic on the 101 and the 405 and these other major freeways. And as a result, the, the mountain lions trapped on this, in this little island uh, have had to resort to mating with their own relatives. And in some cases, male mountain lions have bred with their own daughters and granddaughters and great-granddaughters. And the population has become chronically inbred and has begun to suffer genetic defects as a, as a result. Like, like what? Well, the the uh, the, the most um, one of the mountain lions that was that was captured in the last couple of years had uh, a kinked tail and an undescended testicle, and and that that doesn't sound too catastrophic, but those are early signs of inbreeding in, in, in other populations of mountain lion, like the Florida panther, those sorts of symptoms have been uh, really precursors to much more serious problems like like heart defects. Uh, so, so this this population, this is these are sort of these ominous warning signs that this population is in trouble. And scientists have written that they've they've entered this extinction vortex, this long term doom spiral. And if nothing is done, uh, they're going to die out. Yeah, and you're talking about how the the freeway has divided Santa Monica into two, and that you know the mountain lions can't can't cross the, the highway. Um, and the average home range for female mountain lions is 134 square kilometers. That's a really big distance. But now they don't have that much to roam because of the highways dividing the region. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. You know, these are large animals that patrol huge territories and have to range widely in search of prey. Uh, and when when these big freeways, you know, these I mean, these freeways are some of the most densely trafficked roads on Earth. Uh, you know, the 101 has literally hundreds of thousands of cars every day, and and there's just no way for a, a mountain lion to reliably cross such a busy freeway even at night. Uh, and as a result, the population is completely divided and, and cut off from genetic reinforcements that, uh, that might save it. So one solution that was tried to mitigate the problem of the freeway splitting Santa Monica in two was a bridge for the large cats, for mountain lions, I guess for bobcats too? 
Yeah, so there's a a giant wildlife crossing that's under construction right now. This enormous overpass or a, a bridge that is it, it will be it will be completed by 2025. It's going to cost 90 million dollars all altogether, uh, and it's going to allow interchange between those isolated Santa Monica mountain lions uh, and mountain lions elsewhere in California. So, you know, the the idea is that by bridging the 101, this highway that's that's dividing these populations, you know, mountain lions from the Santa Monicas can leave that population and find their own territories. And maybe even more important, new mountain lions can come in and refresh that that gene pool. So what is this wildlife bridge going to look like? Because I'm trying to figure out how do you make a bridge for mountain lions and prevent people from hanging out on the bridge? Even calling it a bridge is is in some ways a misnomer. It's really this gigantic new piece of prairie and woodland and chaparral that's going to be created from earth. It's it's this sort of giant span that's going to cross the the highway and they're and they're also building up the habitat on either side of it. it's going to have native plants and shrubs and trees uh, atop it and and that's really important because you know, mountain lions are sort of the flagship species for this ecosystem but there are also all kinds of other critters that are affected by this this freeway there are bobcats and coyotes and deer and even small birds are are in some cases reluctant to fly over the freeway and will benefit from being able to hop from shrub to shrub and there are lizards and snakes and insects uh, and so they're tr- they're trying to account for all of these different species by building different habitat features and just trying to account for the whole the whole community of organisms Another thing that's being done to protect animals from the obstruction of roads and other dangers posed by roads and cars is underpasses. Um, what kinds of creatures are those underpasses being used for? Those underpasses are they're used by all kinds of animals. You know, really, they they originated as passages primarily for deer, uh, especially in the American West. You know, in in the East. White-tailed deer are, are the, the deer species that's everywhere. And, you know, white-tailed deer, as anybody who's ever driven around a, a suburb can attest, are basically everywhere, right? They're just all over the landscape. Whereas in the West, there are mule deer, kind of a sister species to white-tailed deer. And, and mule deer are, in many cases, migratory. And the reason for that is that the West just has a, a much harsher climate. You know, places like Wyoming, uh, you know, that are, that are sun-baked half the year and snow-covered the other half. And deer have to migrate uh, across large landscapes to find food and water and shelter and all of the things that they they need. And so they form these big migratory herds, not only deer, but also elk and antelope and all of these other species that are out there, these these ungulate species, hooved animals. Uh, And as a result, you know, sometimes these big herds of mule deer will migrate across a highway on on the way to the the place they're trying to get. Uh, And when that happens, you know, it can be disastrous. Many, many, of course, get hit by cars. And in some cases, the highway prevents them from migrating altogether. Uh, So, you know, in those cases, 
really starting in the 1970s, uh, engineers began to build these big underpasses that allowed these migrating herds of mule deer to cross beneath the road uh, successfully. And, you know, now all kinds of creatures from mountain lions to bobcats to coyotes to otters uh, have used these these underpasses, which are, you know, being built rapidly uh, all over the all over the country. Uh, and, you know, they're certainly one effective way of getting animals uh, across a highway. I just had this image of like turnstiles at the beginning <laughs> of, of the underpasses. Um, I'm from the city. Um, so it, again, like similar to like the overpasses, how do the animals know that this is an under, underpass for their safety and it will help them get to the other side? Right. So a, a couple of ways. The first thing, again, are those fences that go along the road. So the animals are trying to migrate across the road. They hit a fence. They you know, turn left or right and they start walking that fence line looking for a safe way across. And then they reach that underpass and say, OK, maybe this is how we can we can keep going across the across the highway. And then the really wonderful thing that happens over time is that they learn to use these structures. You know, there are many wonderful case studies of, of mother deer that teach their fawns or grizzly bears who teach their cubs uh, and passage rates, you know, the number of animals who feel comfortable moving through these structures actually increases over time as the, the whole population uh, acclimates to these, these, uh, these passages. Uh, and as that happens, you know, more and more animals walk through and that creates little animal trails, little paths, game trails uh, that subsequent generations can essentially follow to the crossing. You know, in some places you see these amazing networks of game trails spider webbing the area around a wildlife crossing. Just so many generations of hooves and paws all walking through the same place, which is uh, very cool. You know, one road ecologist told me that it's almost like the land itself learns how to use these structures together. When you're driving on a country road and you see a sign saying deer crossing, what do you do? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think that I think that, that the answer for most people is nothing. You know, there are so many deer crossing signs out there that they're essentially white noise. You know, I, I heard one biologist uh, refer to them as litter on sticks, which I, I think gets at them <laughs> nicely, right? They're just everywhere. Um, you know, I've seen signs that say things like deer crossing next 40 miles, you know, so you're, <laughs> yeah. you're supposed to be vigilant for 40 miles. No, of course, of course not. So, you know, I don't think that sci- there's plenty of research showing that signs are, are not an effective way of dealing with this problem. I think it's the default band-aid that uh, we tend to slap on this issue, but they don't really do a whole lot. Let's take another break here, and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is Ben Goldfarb, author of the new book, Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series about people's futures and how they can be reimagined. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Dive into the chilling new Hulu original series, Under the Bridge, the riveting adaptation of the acclaimed true crime book. Based on shocking true events, Under the Bridge tells the haunting story of a murder that lays bare a small community's darkest secrets. Go deep into the hidden world of the town's tormented teenagers as detectives race to solve the sinister crime. 
Starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone, Under the Bridge is now streaming with new episodes Wednesdays, only on Hulu. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Dignity Memorial. When your celebration of life is prepaid today, your family is protected tomorrow. Planning ahead is truly one of the best gifts you can give your family. For additional information, visit DignityMemorial.com. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about national parks. They're supposed to be safe spaces for wildlife, and they're also supposed to be places where people can come and experience natural beauty and hike and camp out and learn to really respect and cherish the wild. But those are kind of contradictory missions, bringing people in and protecting wildlife. And continuing that thought, there's something called windshield tourism in national parks. Ex- explain what that is. Yeah, you know, in some ways, national parks are, are what uh, one historian described as windshield wildernesses, you know, these places that are, are really designed to be experienced from your cars. Uh, and, you know, that's, uh, again, I think one of the one of the ironies of, of roads. You know, I've, I've had so many wonderful wildlife encounters while driving. You know, I've seen grizzly bears and wolves and bobcats and all kinds of fantastic creatures uh, in my car. And and yet, uh, of course, the presence of my car is negatively affecting their lives in, in so many ways. So that tension, I think, between roads and cars allowing us to experience nature and helping us love it, even while roads and cars are destroying the thing that they're helping us to love, is, is a tension that I find fascinating and you know, try to explore in the book. One way of uh, cutting back the number of cars in the national parks has been buses. So a lot of people are in one vehicle instead of car after car after car. Another approach has been limiting the number of cars per hour allowed on any given road. How are those things working out? One of the places that I, I went working in this book was was Denali National Park, where uh, there's a, a wonderful shuttle system. And you know, one of the cool things that they they do in Denali is not only do they compel visitors to ride these buses rather than taking their own private vehicles. But they, at least in theory, manage the buses in such a way that there's space between them for wildlife. So if you're, you know, if you're a doll sheep, a, a very uh, iconic animal in Denali National Park, you know, trying to migrate across a road, you know, the buses are moving at intervals that theoretically permit animals to cross between them. So there, ideally, there's, you know, there are these gaps between, uh, between the buses that uh, give creatures a chance to migrate. And, you know, I think that, that, that that's a, a wonderful strategy. It, it seems like it's working reasonably well. But, you know, of course, there's also pressure from the tourism industry and from visitors themselves. You know, we, we want transit systems that deliver uh, a, a frequent and reliable and fast-moving form of transportation, not, uh, not one that has gaps baked into it for wild animals. So, you know, I think ultimately that system is, is working, but, uh, you know, it's, it is uh, controversial in, in some quarters, I think. One of the problems that animals and people are facing is, is climate change. A lot of animals, birds, have to change the regions they're in because they're designed for warm weather or cold weather. 
or dry weather and the, the climate is just changing and they can't survive in that climate the way they used to, so they have, they have to move. And, you know, in terms of long-term stuff, cars are part of the cause of climate change because of all of the, you know, carbon that's released from, from, from cars. So um, can you talk a little bit about climate change and the kind of wildlife that you write about? Certainly, yeah. You know, as as you say, one of the things that's going to happen with climate change and is already happening is that species are changing where they live. You know, often they're moving north or upslope into cooler, cooler climates, and you know, and that makes it even more important that we give them opportunities to cross highways. Right? They're trying to find new habitats, and and roads are preventing them from doing that. Uh, you know, one of the the really cool ideas that's out there in the ether now is is building new types of wildlife crossings, wildlife overpasses that are made out of different materials that are lighter and can actually be disassembled and reassembled. So, you know, you could theoretically put up a, a wildlife crossing for a, a migrating herd of elk. And then as the climate changes and that herd moves northward, you know, you could actually pick up that wildlife crossing and disassemble it and then reassemble it in the new location where the, the animals are are migrating. So, you know, being adaptive and flexible in the, the kinds of solutions that we're creating and thinking about climate change is, is certainly something that road ecologists are, are trying to do. And, and need to do. As part of your research, you traveled to a few other countries looking at what they're doing in terms of protecting animals from cars and roads. So let's let's talk about the UK. What's going on there? The UK has has uh, a, a lot of exciting road ecology projects. One of uh, one of them is this initiative that used to be called Project Splatter, which was uh, a kind of a, a macabre name that I, I really liked. Um, and then they changed it after some complaints to the, the Road Lab, a, a more anodyne uh, <laughs> version. Um, and, you know, what they're, what they're basically doing is marshalling the power of volunteer scientists, right? We're all out there driving around, passing roadkill, and we're potentially data collectors, you know, and, and they've really they've really harnessed that uh, in the UK um, through this this initiative called Road Lab where you know you can use your use your your smartphone to record the uh, the species and location of the dead badgers and hedgehogs and other other creatures that you pass and that's that's really valuable data and there are similar systems that exist in uh, in the United States you know California has a, a program called the California Roadkill Observation System run out of uh, UC Davis and you know the the all of that data that that program has collected all of that volunteer collected data has helped to identify roadkill hotspots on the landscape that could conceivably be places for wildlife crossings so i think that's one of the exciting things about road ecology is that it's you know it's not like it's not like nuclear physics you know yes it's a it's a it's a fascinating complicated discipline that requires real expertise but it's also something that we can all participate in because we're all driving around and you know most of us know what a skunk looks like uh, and we're we're part of the solution as well as part of the problem, potentially. Ben Goldfarb, thank you so much. This was like really interesting. Thank you so much, Terry. Thanks for having me. Ben Goldfarb is the author of the new book, Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. After we take a short break, Maureen Corrigan will review a new dystopian novel set in the near future when most plant and animal species have been smothered by a toxic smog and the narrator is a chef. This is fresh air. This message comes from Schwab. 
It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab Investing Themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives. Empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. In 2020, C. Pam Zhang's debut novel, How Much of These Hills is Gold, broke open the typical Western by focusing on the extreme adventures of a Chinese-American family during the gold rush. The novel won the Asian Pacific Award for Literature and was nominated for the Booker Prize. Our book critic, Maureen Corrigan, says Zhang's new novel, Land of Milk and Honey, takes us into yet another world set in the future. Here's her review. The unhinged autocrat is a familiar figure in literature. Think King Lear. But the fat cat in C. Pam Jong's dystopian novel, Land of Milk and Honey, has an updated Elon Musk vibe. In a not-too-distant world, where most plant and animal species have been smothered by a smog that blankets the planet, human beings largely subsist on bags of mung protein soy algal flour distributed by the government. But not Zhang's unnamed entrepreneur, who's bought himself a mountaintop in Italy where the sun still shines. He's leased shares of this land to wealthy investors and lured top scientists to work on de-extinction teams where they cultivate animals and precious seeds in underground farms and orchards. Like Musk with his SpaceX, this guy also has the ultimate plan B in the works, should planet Earth be irredeemably lost. The narrator of Land of Milk and Honey is also unnamed. She's a young Asian-American chef who finds herself stuck in England when America's borders close, and also stuck in a profession without a future. The menus of the few restaurants that remain cater to a growing demand for nativist recipes. The chef tells us that as they shut borders to refugees, so countries shut their palates to all but those cuisines deemed essential. In England, the shrinking supplies of frozen fish were reserved for kippers or gray renditions of cod and chips, and of course, a few atrociously expensive French preparations. In desperation, the chef applies for a job at the so-called elite research community presided over by the mogul, or as she will refer to him, my employer. Her stated job is to whip up extravagant meals to delight the taste buds of the rich residents and prospective investors, as well as the mogul's charismatic daughter, Aida. But the longer the chef 
toils away in the isolated compound, the more she realizes that she's been hired less for her cooking skills than for her appearance, specifically for the fact that she, like Aida's mother who's vanished, is Asian. Never mind that their ethnicities are not exactly the same. As the chef tells us, it has always been easy to disappear as an Asian woman, to be mistaken for Japanese or Korean or Lao women, decades older or younger, several shades darker or lighter, for my own mother once I hit puberty. Given that it's a novel about the struggle to fend off deprivation and extinction, Land of Milk and Honey is gloriously lush. Zhang's sensuous style makes us see, smell, and above all, taste the lure of that sun-dappled mountain enclave. Here, for instance, is the moment where our narrator descends into one of the mogul's vast storerooms for the first time. Others have estimated the value in those rooms, of grains, of nuts, of beans. I can only say what happened when I press my face to a wheel of ten-year Parmigiano. How in a burst of grass and ripe pineapple, I stood in some green meadow. And I can tell you of the ferocious crack in my heart when I walked into the deep freezer to see chickens, pigs, rabbits, boars hung two by two. No more boars roamed the world above. I knew then why the storerooms were guarded as if they held gold or nuclear armaments. They hid something rarer still, a passage back through time. As she did in her debut novel, How Much of These Hills is Gold, which toyed with the expectations of the classic Western, Zhang here helps herself to generous portions of another type of genre, the vintage sci-fi disaster movie. I'm thinking especially of the 1951 classic, When Worlds Collide. Zhang invests this pop plotline with emotional gravitas and up-to-date relevancy through the character of the chef, a young woman who belongs to what's dubbed Generation Mayfly because her cohort's life expectancy is shorter than that of their parents. Our chef tells us that so much of what my generation has been promised disintegrated at our touch. Land of Milk and Honey is an atmospheric and poetically suspenseful novel about all manner of appetites for power, food, love, life. At its center is one of the most Baroque banquet scenes you'll ever be invited to, one that wickedly tests the pluck of even the most ravenous eaters and readers. Maureen Carrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed Land of Milk and Honey by C. Pam Zhang. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, my guest will be songwriter, singer, and musician Allison Russell. She's written great songs combining affecting, catchy melodies with lyrics about being abused by her white, racist, adoptive father, her biological father as black, and sometimes escaping by sleeping in a park or cemetery. Her new album also has songs about reclaiming her body. She'll sing and talk about her life. I hope you'll join us. 
Our co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.